0: Last week, we were at Acts chapter 18. Go figure. The one right before 19. Acts chapter, uh, excuse me. Last week, when we looked at Acts chapter 18, Paul began his third missionary journey. Uh, he's, he's been around Asia Minor. He's been to the different continents. He's been to the island of Cyprus. He's traveled quite extensively. And everywhere he's went, he's planted the seed of the gospel. And every time he's planted the seed that a church has sprung up, either out of a home fellowship or through a personal conversation that he had with someone he encountered along the way. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, Paul began his third missionary journey, and he began last week by going to Galatia and Phrygia. And Galatia was just a region basically where Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and All the way to the tip there is a place by the name of Ephesus. But everywhere he went, his main purpose, shown by what he did, was strengthening the disciples there. Everywhere he went, he desired to take what he had taught them, understanding and believing in Jesus Christ, and then showing them and encouraging them to walk by faith, by believing what Jesus had taught So when Paul came through Ephesus on the end of the second missionary journey, he was heading from Corinth and he sailed to Ephesus, which was on the tip of Asia Minor. I should have put a map on there. But when he got there, he spoke in the synagogue and for the first time since he had started going on missionary journeys, he went into the synagogue, he preached Jesus there and what they said to him was unlike anything they'd ever said to him. They said, why don't you stay here a while and continue to teach us? And Paul, in usual Paul fashion, has to go. He's busy. He's he's taken a, a Nazarite vow and he's wanting to get back to Jerusalem in time for the Passover feast to make his offering to the Lord. We talked about the Nazarite vow last week and we won't get into that this week, but Basically, he had made a vow to the Lord that he was going to go to Jerusalem and make it a thank offering to the Lord, thanking him for all of his faithfulness in his life. So on his way through, he stopped in Ephesus. He preached the gospel there. They asked him to stay, and he said, I can't stay according to, um, I think, verse 21 last week. He said, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you. Then he puts in this phrase that's very important, God willing. I will return again to you, God willing. And then he sailed from Ephesus. So he said, I want to stay here, but I've already made this vow to the Lord. I'm going to keep it. My yes is my yes and my no is no. So I'm going there to make a thank offering, but Lord willing, if the Lord is willing, then I will come back. And so I think it's important that we look at that in James in chapter 4, verse 13, because James there is writing to Christian believers, and he's basically letting them know that if you want to have a good testimony about trusting the Lord with your life, you need to live with this principle. In verse 13, it says, he's writing to them quite stoutly. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, We'll spend a year there. We'll buy and sell and make a profit. He says, you who say this, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow in your life, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. He says, this is how we ought to live our lives instead. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. If you say you trust the Lord, then that means that tomorrow you don't know what's coming, but God does, you're trusting him. And so don't brag about your plans of, well, I'm going to go do this tomorrow because you should always put in there if the Lord is willing. Because sometimes what we have planned, God switches it up for his purposes. Proverbs says, a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so sometimes we make a to-do list. We have things that we have planned to do, things that we would like to do even. And the Lord says, how about you edit that to-do list because I've got my to-do list that supersedes yours. And so it's a humbling thing, but at the same time, it's the right way to think about our lives because then we'll recognize that he's the one in charge and he has purposes beyond what you and I may even want to do or have plans to do. And so he wants us to be flexible. And Paul is showing that as an example here in the book of Acts, he's showing that, you know, he's made this vow and he's traveling, but his desire, and it was from the first missionary journey, he wanted to go to Ephesus because Paul has this pattern of showing up in these huge cities. And he goes there because out of those huge cities, they have influence on all the cities surrounding them. We've talked about that before, how many times we maybe, you know, have this mindset as Christians, like we want to get away from the world and be on our own turf. But the Lord, he desires to have influence. And so he sends a lot of people to metropolitan areas to affect many people that will go out and send out fingers, tributaries, if you will, to go and affect those smaller towns with the gospel. His desire is still to go to those small towns. And we're an example of that, you know, but but he starts oftentimes in the more influential places, the places that have the Walmarts, you know, Sam Walton doesn't take and put gigantic Walmarts in small towns because if he puts them in larger towns, then a larger group of people will be able to go to them. They're more likely to be going to those areas. And so he can make more money that way. So it makes sense. God wants to have influence on this world. And so he sends his people to the larger cities and those people go to the smaller cities around them. And Paul's showing this pattern and what he does. So this week he ends up on the third missionary journey. The Lord is willing. And so he shows up back at Ephesus and he'll spend what seems to be around three years here in Ephesus. But before that takes place, there's a a couple that Paul had invested in and spent time ministering with in Corinth. On his second missionary journey, he left Corinth and he took Aquila and Priscilla with him. And when he took them and he was going through Ephesus, He not only preached the gospel in the synagogue, but he also left Aquila and Priscilla there. So they've stayed there and they invested in a man by the name of Apollos. Now, Apollos ended up going back to Corinth once um, Aquila and Priscilla explained to him the faith more specifically. So when they met up with Apollos, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. And if you'll remember in the gospels in John chapter one, you might turn there if you want in John chapter 1, John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus Christ. And he was the one who uh, the Old Testament said would be a one. the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And John, when he came, he, he proclaimed, he said, I'm, the, I'm not the one, but I'm the one who came before him. I'm the one that God sent to prepare the way for the Messiah to enter in. And so what he did is he proclaimed a baptism of repentance. And this baptism of repentance was one where they would come, repent of their sins, be baptized in the water, and they would come up clean. And the idea was in the Old Testament, when they would go to the temple to worship, those who would minister in the temple, there was a big bathtub outside. And they would get in this bathtub and they would basically rinse themselves off. They would be ceremonially clean. And then they would be able to go into the presence of God. Now, <clears throat> we know from a New Testament perspective that washing the outside of our bodies does not make us clean inwardly towards God. It doesn't purify us at all. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he said, you know, you guys are whitewashed tombs. Outside, everything looks great, but inwardly, your heart it's sinful, it's, not, it's wicked, it hasn't been changed at all. You've hardened your hearts against the truth. You haven't repented at all. You're just doing these deeds to be seen by men. But when John the Baptist came, he was a pretty fiery guy and he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. Well, that kingdom of God he was talking about was the Messiah that their Old Testament had told them over and over again, God's gonna be faithful, he's gonna send you a Messiah who will deliver you, who will give you salvation. So when he came and prepared the way he preached in the wilderness, he said, repent of your sin. And when the Pharisees came, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Because they were just outwardly religious. They came not because they wanted to repent. They wanted to see what was going on because there were people flocking from the cities to these deserted places to hear this crazy preacher who was wearing camel hair clothes and he was eating locusts. He was kind of a, a radical guy. And so when he's preaching them, to them to be baptized, he's saying, cleanse your ways, make your heart humble, be prepared because the Messiah is coming and you need to be ready for him. And so when he told them that, it was a cleansing outwardly. It was a cleansing that he was hoping would lead to them being humble inwardly. And Jesus, however, when he came to cleanse us and to fulfill that, Excuse me. John the Baptist had told them, repent, because Jesus is coming. And as a matter of fact, in John chapter 1, where I had you turn, it says there in verse 29, after John had been baptizing there in the wilderness, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't just wash off our sin, but he takes it from us. Jesus took our sin upon his body and was given physical death. They flogged him, they chastised him, they killed him because he died with our sins on himself. He doesn't just wash us of our sins, he takes our sins on himself. And then verse 30 says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Verse 32, and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained on Jesus. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is, in fact, the Son of God. So he's saying, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. No longer just an outwardly ritual of being cleansed and being prepared, but you are being prepared and cleansed so that you could receive the Holy Spirit who would come and dwell in you. And that dwelling that takes place in us not only purifies us, But it also gives us power, he also gives us power to testify of Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't point towards himself, he speaks of Jesus. And in the life where the Holy Spirit is present, Jesus becomes number one. Jesus becomes everything that comes off of that person's lips. And and glory and honor is given to him. So, Apollos understood the baptism of John the Baptist but he didn't know that there was a Holy Spirit that he could receive. And so when Aquila and Priscilla explained that, he was like, cool. So he was in fact a a disciple of John the Baptist because John the Baptist's disciples had been prepared to receive Jesus. Now the Pharisees and the scribes, when Jesus came along, they weren't prepared because their hearts were still hard. They hadn't repented of their sin. But Apollos, when he received Jesus, when he received the Holy Spirit, his desire immediately was to take that message and to go and to share it with whoever God sent him to, and he desired to go to Achaia. So he left Ephesus, he went to Corinth where Paul had already been, and he continued to teach. Meanwhile, Paul had went back to Jerusalem. He went north to Antioch. He went and as we read today, he encouraged and strengthened the believers in Galatia and Phrygia And then he went to Ephesus where Apollos had already been. So God's kind of moving this master chess set and he's positioning everybody so that they can be used in the most effective way. And Paul then shows up in Ephesus and God puts him in the path of these specific people. Acts chapter 19 verse 1. It says it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul having passed through the upper regions He arrived in Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. That's what I was talking about. The baptism of repentance. So verse 4, Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So apparently these 12 had not crossed paths with Aquila and Priscilla. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla are in Ephesus. Well, that makes sense to me because Ephesus was not like Ironton. Everybody didn't know everybody. Now, it was more like going to a metropolitan area like St. Louis or a large city of some sort that you've been to before, Chicago. You know, And so Aquila and Priscilla are ministering there, but they're one amongst a multitude of people. This was a large city in those days. And so they had definitely not met with Aquila and Priscilla, because if they had, Aquila and Priscilla would have taught the same thing that they did to Apollos to these 12 men. Another thing is these were definitely disciples of John the Baptist, like I said, because their hearts were prepared, they were humbled, and they were ready to receive the Messiah once they knew of his coming, of his work. Number three, their response to Paul's message is that they believed they were baptized. If anyone hears the word of God, believes what it says, and the Lord is working in their lives, their response to hearing and believing will be obedience. And that's what these guys did. They heard the message, they believed it, and their belief in that message led to obedience. Many times you'll meet people that say that they believe in Jesus, but their life does not show any sort of obedience. That tells me that that's a big red flag. You say you believe, James writes, even the demons believe in Jesus. They know that he is who he is, but they don't obey him. And so the Lord shows us in these 12 guys that when someone hears and believes, they do. And so Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 verse 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? Those who call Jesus Lord and do not obey him are not disciples of Jesus, or they're being disobedient, and the Lord will chastise them. This also shows us that these 12 men must not have been around John the Baptist the day that he met Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Perhaps they were of the multitudes that were coming in, they got baptized, and they moved on. And there was just, probably just one group that was there the day when Jesus showed up. So they're scattered in every which direction with only a partial revelation of what God was getting ready to do. Many of them got scattered back to where they were going. And so... Since they didn't have the internets and Facebook and Twitter, they didn't just go, hashtag Jesus is risen. You know, they didn't have any of that. They couldn't have instant information. And so they just went on their business. And perhaps many of them said, hey, you need to repent and be baptized. They went out and baptized other people, perhaps. That's just a devotional thought. But they hadn't been given the full revelation of Jesus. And so they believed, they obeyed. And then um, it says in verse six that as they believed, obeyed, and were baptized, that they received the Holy Spirit when Paul laid hands on them. And so they were given power to obey the Lord. Now, why did Paul ask them if they had received the Holy Spirit? Because this is a question that came up with me, and maybe it did for you when you were reading this. Many believe that Paul, when he noticed their lack of power and their witness, maybe they didn't have an understanding of that Jesus was the Messiah, that He, Jesus is their Lord. Maybe at that point, he was just like, okay, they, they they get it, but they don't. They understand repentance, but they don't understand that Jesus paid for their sins. And so Paul explained it to them and they moved on. I think it's interesting. Sometimes people want to obey the Lord but they don't fully understand what that means. They don't really have a full view of what Jesus came to do to deal with sin, to give us victory over sin, to help us to live pure lives. And so sometimes we need to listen to people, see where they're at, and maybe take the little bit that we know a little bit more than they do. Just tell them that. I've heard so many Christians say, well, I can't really share the word with people because I don't know it all. Well, if those that didn't know at all about the Lord never shared anything. Nobody would share anything because none of us fully understand the mysteries of godliness. None of us have it all down yet, this side of heaven. That's just a reality we have to live with. But we always, if somebody comes to us and has questions, we may not know more than them, but we can go look. We know where the source is. But sometimes we do know a little bit more and even though we don't know everything, the little bit we do know more, we can share with them. We can teach. And so, for instance, just this last week I heard a story of a friend of mine. He went to uh, St. Louis. They were going to the Arch, and then they went to the zoo. But they stopped to get something to eat in between. And they were at this restaurant, just a fast food place, and they prayed over their meal. When well, they got done praying over their meal. One of the employees came over and said, I have never seen anybody thank the Lord or pray in public like that before. That was that was awesome. And uh, and they were like, hey, you know, we're just giving thanks to the Lord. He's, he's provided for this food and we're just giving him thanks. That's what we do. He said, you know, it's funny you say that. I just, I've been really struggling in my walk with the Lord. I feel like I don't really have any power. I feel like I'm always tempted to sin and I just give in so easy. You know, just really been struggling lately. He just started opening up To these people, they just prayed over their meal. That's all they were doing. They weren't saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. They were just praying. But what what happened is, as he discussed with them and shared with them where he was at spiritually, he basically had told them, you know, I I was born into a Christian family, and uh, I've always been a Christian, and so I just, you know, I feel like there's something missing. And, And, of course, they're listening going, okay, look, um... Can we tell you a story? And he was like, yeah, no problem. And he goes, they they basically, they stopped and they're like, you need to understand something. You may have been born into a Christian family, but that does not make you a Christian. Unless a person be born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. And it's funny because something as simple as that can rob somebody for their whole life. Because he hadn't spent any time in the word of God. He didn't know that you can't just be born into a family and then because my dad or my grandma was a Christian, I'm a Christian too. And many people believe that. It's a small thing, but it's a huge thing. And so they basically explained to them in a loving way, they said, you gotta be born again, man. You need to receive Jesus personally. This isn't something you can just inherit. And he was like, I didn't know that. Where does it say that in the Bible? So they took him to scripture and he was like, I need to be saved. And he got saved. And how cool is that? Because they didn't have to tell him some deep theological conversation. He was already ready. He was desiring to follow the Lord, but he didn't understand how to do that in truth. And so they just spoke into his life. God changed things. When engaging others and talking with them about the Lord, we need to make sure that we spend the majority of the time listening. Because if you'll just listen to people, everything that's in there, will come out. You'll be able to kind of tell where they're at spiritually. And then after they share with you, you can let the Lord speak to them. Not based on your opinion or what you feel, but just allow the Lord to speak His word to them. Even while they're saying something. Maybe you get a pause and they have a question for you. Just pray, Lord, give me the wisdom that they need to hear because I don't know. I don't know what they need. And He can do that. He can meet them right in the midst of their thing. We're God's ambassadors in the world. And if we don't take what he shows us and speak it into the lives of those that he drops seemingly coincidentally into our paths, no one else is going to speak it. People aren't looking for godly wisdom all the time. They start asking questions. God's moving on their heart. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 says this. Jesus telling his disciples, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. He says, therefore, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works And glorify who? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. When your light shines, when God shines through your life, who's going to get the glory? He is. And so we need to be those willing vessels to be filled with God's word. And then don't be afraid. When God gives you the opportunity, He'll give you the words to speak. We just need to be filled with Him. So verse 8. And he went into the synagogue, so he spoke with these 12 men. He moves on, he went into the synagogue as he typically did, and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, the way is what Christianity was originally called. They called them the way because in John chapter 14 verse 6, Jesus said to them, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so when they called themselves, they called themselves by what he called himself, the way. What is J- Jesus? He's the way to heaven. So what does that look like? I don't know. Let's, let's follow the way. And so that's what they called themselves. But they spoke evil of the way before the multitude So he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. And then he went reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul, basically, he's he's planting a garden here in Ephesus. And as you plant a garden, you till the soil, you break up the ground, you take all the weeds out, And you take the seed and you spread it. Now God's word is the seed. He's teaching, he's reasoning, he's persuading those who will listen. And as he does that in the synagogue, he's doing it with the religious Jews and the God fearers of the community. Now you may not believe this, but because they're in churches, they're kind of set in their ways. And so they've been doing the same thing for a long time. And because of that, when something new comes in, their first reaction is to kind of, like a cat when you sneak up on it, or one time I was going out to feed our animals, and I went and I opened up the feed bucket, and there was a possum in there. And I shined my flashlight in there <coughs> praise the Lord, because my hand would be gone. I shined the light in there, and that little possum was. <sighs> and that's what happens when we share our faith with somebody that thinks they're good. I'm good. I'm following God. I'm doing my own thing, you know. And when we start to tell them about Jesus, if they don't know him, it's kind of a, it's offensive to speak to a Jewish person, even today, that believes that God bases their righteousness on their works or their following or obeying the law. When you tell them that their works, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags. When you tell them that God won't accept you based on your good outweighing your bad. That's offensive because they spent their whole life doing as many good things as they can to earn God's favor. But you can't do it. God tells us that. If there was any other way that Jesus would be able to avoid suffering for our sake, he prayed that. Lord, if there's any way that this cup of suffering could pass for me, then let it pass. But not your will be done, but, excuse me, not my will be done, but your will be done. And then Jesus suffered on the cross. There was no other way for us to get to heaven, for us to have our sins forgiven us. And so Paul there is explaining to them all these things. And then after three months, he labored with them for three months. He didn't just tell them one time and go, okay, I'm done. You rejected it. No, he went for three months faithfully. He continued to teach them. He continued to persuade them. He loved them enough to keep going. But when they finally got to a certain point and rejected it, he didn't continue trying to shove a square peg into a round hole, he moved on. He's planting seed in soil and when the soil doesn't produce anything, he moves to a different piece of ground. They didn't have soil samples. They didn't have the Missouri Extension Office. They had to just plant seed and see what happened. And if it didn't grow, they'd move to some better soil and then they'd see what happened there. So Paul moves on from the synagogue, and he goes to a very unprecedented place. He goes to a school. He goes to a secular school in Ephesus. And what he knows about their society is that in the heat of the day, from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. every day, the schools would let out. They'd send the kids home for lunch, and they would take naps. There was nap time. I'd sign up for that if they offered it. But during that heat of the day, Paul said, you know what? That school is uninhabited. It's set up for teaching. Why don't I see if I can use that place? Now, we don't know if he just asked for permission or if he rented it. Perhaps the school needed money like schools typically do. So all he's got to do is pay to use a building that is useless from one to four and see who shows up. So he starts a Bible study. He opens up this school. He goes in. And every day, not weekly, not bi-weekly, he teaches the word of God. He persuades people that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He explains to them that, that salvation is needed because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He explains to them that their righteousness won't get them to heaven because God is holy. He's so other than us. And when he does that, notice the result there in verse 10. He continued for two years, not just three months, but two years because it was a good work. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Asia's a pretty big place. Ephesus itself was a huge place. And so teaching for two years, he continued there. They didn't pay him. He was still making tents. And as a result of that, him just being faithful to show up every day on his break from one to four and teach the word of God, people believed and were saved. Now, it doesn't say there though, and I want to note this, it doesn't say that all who dwelt in Asia were saved. It says all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. The decision was up to them. Paul's job was not to save people. Paul's job was to plant the seed to let God... Make the increase. And so when it landed on good soil, salvation was had. Now, for one example, Paul wrote a letter later to the, to the church in Colossae. It's called Colossians. Go figure. And, but Paul writes to that place, but he never went there. He never started a church there. It would seem that the time, the two years he made an impact in Ephesus, there were others that went out and started churches in these other towns. And so Paul saw it as a fruit of his labor, and he would write letters to them to encourage the pastor and the people there. But he was essentially, his ministry had touched more than just Ephesus. So we need Christians who are called by God not just to be in the church, not to just speak with Christians, but to speak to non believers. In different formats. We have a a prayer meeting every Monday at US Tool. And we're praying that God would start up a Bible study eventually. Maybe on lunchtime. It hasn't happened yet. But that's my desire. I know there's other people that have a desire to have home fellowships. And my prayer is that they would begin to be home Bible studies. We don't have to just study God's word here. Some people will not show up at a church. No matter how much it looks like an old paint store. Some people won't show up at a church with stained glass windows. For some people, their gateway drug for Jesus is going to be a Bible study in the middle of Columbia Park and Park Hills. A friend of mine, several months ago, started a Bible study in Columbia Park and Park Hills. And people I went to high school are getting saved. People that work with us, that God keeps laying on my heart to pray for. I just found out the other day, another one just started showing up at their Bible study on Tuesday nights every week. And these guys are getting saved and they're sharing their faith with their families. And I think eventually that's going to grow into a church. But the reality is, is the gospel is something that God sends into the world. Jesus was sent from heaven to the world. And his disciples are sent out of the church, into the world, into the places that we're not as comfortable talking about our faith. Because there are people out there dying, not knowing that they need salvation. There are people that that are still trying to weigh their good against their bad. They don't know that they don't have to do that anymore. They need Jesus. And so God sends them out in different ways, sends us out in different ways. We got a little bit of time left, so I'm gonna um, go through verse 20 this morning. Now, God worked unusual miracles, verse 11, by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, or aprons, were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Paul is being used by God, not just to teach the word, but to also have mighty deeds. And it says there that these were unusual miracles. Doesn't seem that Paul oftentimes got used in this way. In Paul's life, it was an unusual thing to be used in this way. We haven't read about anything in Luke's account Of Paul being used to do miracles well I'm sure there's been a couple of cases but I can't think of them right now but Paul in the city of Ephesus is against something that's a little bit heavier than just a a knowledge difference that they want because he's in a city where they're doing occultic practices basically they're worshiping gods they're doing black magic they're um, going to sorcerers to get their palm read They're going and doing all these occultic practices. And because of that, these people need a little bit extra to knock them out of their their stupor, out of their sleep. Because in that culture, and even today, demons are real. Just as much as angels are real, demons are real. And we're going to see that this morning. But there were many people that were captivated by demons and doctrines of demons And there were many people that were sick because they had spent time worshiping these false gods who behind every false god is a demon. And so because of that, God uses a little bit of extra oomph through Paul. And he uses what it says here, his handkerchiefs and aprons that he had worn. Now, Paul's a tent maker. So if he's making tents all night long, he's wearing these, you know, bandanas, basically, and these aprons. You know what is special about these aprons? nothing but they're soaked with sweat so they're nasty so the fact that God would use these basically these work claws or you know dirty rags that he's been wearing while he's working to keep the sweat out of his eyes is an amazing thing but then it says there well before we go there I wanted to say that there's nothing special about the cloth if you 've ever watched any televangelists sometimes they'll they 'll say, "Hey, for your seen faith fund, if you 'll send us some money we 'll send you a prayer cloth we 've prayed over it, and it will give you healing'll it 'll do whatever you need it to do, kind of like an abracadabra kind of thing. But what Paul does here is he 's being used by the Lord to be a vessel through whom God brings healing and casts out demons so the, there 's nothing special about the rag but that it 's a touch point. For these people to be healed, and I say that because in uh, Mark chapter five, Jesus Himself was used in this way. There was healing that took place as they touched the hem of His garment. Verse twenty-five of Mark chapter five. It says there, a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. She tried every other way to be healed by in this world. For she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, touch my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging around you? And you say, who touched me? Basically in a huge crowd, everybody was touching him. But the difference was, this woman had touched him, expecting and believing that he could heal her. Just by touching the hem of his garment. See, her faith was not in the rag, or the hem of the garment. Her faith was that no one else has been able to heal me, and I hear that this man can heal me. So her faith was in Jesus. It's not about the strength of her faith. It's about who her faith was placed in. And so she was healed. And so I believe that this is the same thing happening here with Paul, that God's using Paul as a as a conduit through which his power can be funneled so that these people can experience the reality of what God can do in a life. And so verse 13 says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And also there were seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish chief priest who did the same thing. And so before we go on to that point, in verse 11, it says the miracles were done. Excuse me, that was the wrong part. Was Seeing that Jesus' name had power over demons, seeing that Jesus' name being used could give healing to these folks and that Paul was being used in this way, they saw Jesus and his name is kind of like what I said earlier, like the word apricadabra for a magician. Okay, so if we do this, this, and this, then we can heal people. Paul must just be using some sort of magic word. This must be some sort of magic trick he's got. So we'll just... We won't really follow Paul's God, but we'll take what he's doing and we'll use it for our gain because these people made money by being exorcists. And so it says there that they tried to use Jesus' name in order to heal these people and in order to cast out demons. And there were those in the Jewish culture that were exorcists. And we know this because in Matthew chapter 12, it actually says there, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. There was one brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except for by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And then he says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying there, okay, so you say I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. Then who do your sons cast them out by? They knew that casting out a demon was something that was actually taking place. He's saying, how how are they doing it? Who's to say that they're not doing the same thing? And then he's basically saying, Satan's not going to cast out Satan. He's not going to try to thwart his own way of life, his own way of putting people down and oppressing them and so these men who are using jesus name to do this not having a relationship with god but trying to use him for gain they have no power and we see this it speaks for itself verse 15 the evil spirit answered and said to these sons of Skeva, he says jesus i know and paul i know but who are you I know who Jesus is, and I'm aware of who Paul is, but I don't know who you are. And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. If you try to go against the kingdom of darkness without a relationship with Jesus, you will end up naked and wounded. They got brutally beaten by this demon. And because of that, here's what happened. Verse 17. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. They saw the miracles that Jesus did through Paul. They saw those who didn't believe in Jesus trying to use Jesus' name, not having a relationship with them. And they saw how they utterly failed. And because of that, they saw the reality that is the kingdom of darkness that can overpower anyone who is not submitted to the Lord. The consequences of using Jesus' name without knowing him personally is that there's no power. Paul was known by them and Jesus, and therefore Jesus' authority that was given to him from his father was given to Paul. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, 6 verse 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. When we try to engage Satan on our own, it can only and will only end in disaster. Like we read about these men. They were left naked and beaten by the enemies of God. However, James gives us a formula on how to defeat temptation, to defeat sin. If you want to call it a formula, that is. For us to have victory over the enemies of God, it can be found in James chapter 4, verse 7. James chapter 4, verse 7 says this. He writes there, he says, Therefore, submit to God, number one, resist the devil, number two, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. See, we think if I want to deal with sin, if I want to deal with temptation, I want to overcome, the way that I got to do it is just hit it head on. But what the Lord says is number one, submit to me, follow me, do the things that I've shown you, believe them and obey them. And as a result, your life will be pure and your life will be victorious. You won't have to fight. The Lord will fight your battle. So these men's lack of power revealed where Paul's power came from. Their inability to have power over Satan showed that Paul had something more than they did. And because of that, it leads to those that heard of it repenting and desiring purity. Verse 17, this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. They started by saying, Lord, we've been wrong. We haven't been surrendered to you because of that we're getting beat down. They confessed their sin, they were telling their deeds. And then also their repentance looked like this. Many of those who had practiced magic, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. They turned to God from the occultic and the dark practices and they were even willing to get rid of those things, to burn them, things that they had put in front of God. They burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of the things that were burned, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. They were like, we don't care how much money this cost us, we're going to burn it, because it's caused our lives to be double-minded. It's caused us to be powerless. We don't have victorious lives. We're being defeated daily. And so as a result of that, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The word of God grew mightily and prevailed in Ephesus. It had already traveled to all of Asia. There's nothing more powerful against evil than a life that is fully surrendered to following Jesus. So let me ask you this morning: What are the things in your life that's causing you to be powerless against sin, against temptation, against against all the things that are against you? What are the things that keep you from being a bold witness like Paul's been? Remember, Paul's just another human being like you and I. The only difference from Paul to us is that he had fully committed himself. In Romans chapter one, he actually said this. He said, I am persuaded that God is able to keep that which I've committed to him until the day of Christ Jesus. Because he was persuaded of that, he was willing to go all in. He was willing to put it all on the line and say, Lord, Everything that I have is yours. Burn up all the junk. Take all the things out of my life that cause me not to be a light for you. And as a result of that, Paul, we see is used in a mighty way. And he's even gonna take the rest of this trip and go to Rome. He's gonna testify before the king over all of the land. And he's not worried about being put to death. He's not worried about the the, the soldiers or anybody putting him to shame because. He submitted to the Lord. And if you kneel, if you submit yourself, if you humble yourself before the Lord, you can stand before anybody. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the the patience with my voice. Um, Lord, thank you for the testimony of Paul that there was nothing in him that had any power, but because his life was fully surrendered to you, because you had changed his life so vehemently. Because of that, you purified him and used him as a bold witness who would teach in all seasons, who would exhort, who would encourage, who would strengthen the body of believers, and who was also willing to be used in unprecedented ways through his very sweat claws to heal those who were bound up. Father, please use our lives, our ordinary mundane, everyday lives. Help us to be faithful in submitting to you, and we pray that you would use our lives to show your glory through us. Use the most ordinary things in our lives to bring you glory. So Father, we love you, we thank you, and we pray that you would bless us as we go out and as we trust you with this week. Lord, uh, teach us to follow you more. In Jesus' name, amen.